and inspired. We love God. We ought to be able to talk about him. Getting you started on your day. With the latest in breaking news and information. From the Vatican to the White House and everything in between. It's serious. It's fun. It's your Catholic drive time. And welcome to Catholic Drive Time. This is your host, Adrian Fonseca. Today is Tuesday, August 1st, 2023. The feast of St. Alphonsus Maria de Liguori. He was born in Naples, Italy in 1696 into a noble family. His father was the head of the galleys. In fact, he was in charge of making sure those who were put to service because of crimes were called to row the boats. He was known to be a very severe man, but also a very kind man. He excelled academically. He ended up becoming a doctor of law by the age of 16 and pursued a successful career as a lawyer. In fact, he gained a reputation as one of the leaders of the Neapolitan Bar by the age of 26. In fact, I think that you could turn his life into a legal drama. I think it would be really cool to see because during a major dispute between two grand dukes of warring feudal nations, they had an earthly dispute, and he had a clear-cut case where he thought he was going to be victorious. But at the last second, he made an elementary blunder and ended up losing the case because he was following the laws of one country when really he was supposed to be following the laws of another. During this major defeat, and a very humiliating defeat, he spent three days fasting and weeping because of his sorrow over his failure in his work. During this time, he experienced an appeal to Almighty God that called him to dedicate himself to God. During that time, he dedicated his life to our Lord, and he was ended up being ordained in 1726. He laid down his sword and gave up his primogeniture, which is his birthright as the firstborn son, and joined the ordination of the priesthood. He ended up founding the Congregation of the Most Holy Redeemer, the Redemptorist Order, to continue his work evangelizing and caring for the humble people. During his time, what he's most well-known for today is the field of moral theology, drawing from his experience in confessing thousands of souls. And despite numerous offers, Alphonsus declined the, uh, the opportunity to become an archbishop he later accepted the bishopric because of an appeal directly from the Pope. Now, he died at the age of 90 in 1787, and while he was battling for almost uh, over a decade of grave illness. St. Alphonsus Maria de Liguori, pray, pray for, for us. us. Now, happy Tuesday to you. I apologize. My, um, I am currently still dealing with my wisdom teeth problems at the moment, and the uh, at the moment it's been uh, particularly difficult for some reason uh, what today teeth? more difficult yeah exactly <laughs> uh, particularly more difficult today than it was yesterday for some reason and I'm uh, having trouble speaking very well this morning oh, no. so um, uh, your your thanks and your gratitude for your patience with me this morning uh, for some reason it's been a not ideal situation right now so prayers for me I'd be very grateful to you if you would be able to pray for me. So, good morning to you. Happy Tuesday. Um, before we get going, uh, obviously joining us right now is Rudy Carlos. Good morning, Rudy. Hey, good morning, Adrian. It's uh, it's good to be here. Absolutely. Praise be to God. Now, 
coming up during the show today, at 15 past the hour, a high school senior, the, the high school senior boys are nearly twice as likely to identify as conservative over liberal. That's very fascinating to me. At 30 past the hour, the counter-revolution revisited with Charles Cologne. When we talk about that, he writes for the European Conservative. Well, many things, but that's what we're talking about today. In the next hour, Debbie Giorgiani will be joining us, talking about the spirit world. And as always, we uh, want to have, um, before we get going, we want to be praying for Emily Esserman and the entire Esserman family and for their daughter, Sienna. Uh, we're going to pray dedicating the month of August is dedicated to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. So during this month, we have the Feast of the Assumption, and we, there's actually several several feast days this uh, month dedicated to the Blessed Virgin. And so we are going to do the consecration prayer to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. It's a little long, so I may switch this prayer out with something else sometime throughout the week. If I find a, a shorter prayer that we can pray together. But it's a very beautiful prayer. This prayer was composed by St. Maximilian Kolbe himself. So a very beautiful thing. Let's begin in prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, amen. We offer up this for the salvation of souls, the liberty and exaltation of Holy Mother Church, for our friends, our family, our benefactors, and whatever it is you have going on, and that we sort of survived today with my, um, with my teeth problem. O Immaculata, Queen of Heaven and Earth, Refuge of sinners and our most loving mother. God has willed to entrust the entire order of mercy to you. I, a repentant sinner, cast myself at your feet, humbly imploring you to take me with all that I am and have wholly to yourself as your possession and property. Please make of me of all my power of soul and body of my whole life and death and eternity, whatever most pleases you. If it pleases you, use all that I am and have without reserve, wholly to accomplish what was said of you. She will crush your head, and you alone have destroyed all heresies in the world. Let me be a fit instrument in your immaculate and merciful hands for introducing and increasing your glory to the maximum and all the many strayed and indifferent souls and thus help extend as far as possible the blessed kingdom of the most sacred heart of Jesus. For wherever you enter, you obtain the grace of conversion and growth in holiness. Since it is through your hands that all graces come to us for the most sacred heart of Jesus. Allow me to praise you, O sacred virgin. Give me strength against your enemies. O Mary, conceived without sin, pray for us who have recourse to thee, and all those who do not have recourse to thee, especially the Freemasons. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. And now your headline news with Rudy Carlos. Good morning. You're listening in Catholic Drive Time, keeping you informed and inspired. Here are your Tuesday headlines. This is from the Post Millennial. Devin Archer says Joe Biden was on more than 20 of Hunter Biden's business calls while VP under Obama. Archer testified that the reason Hunter Biden got the post with the Burisma Board of Directors was for, quote, the brand, unquote. He was paid $83,000 per month by the Ukrainian energy giant. Archer also stated that Burisma would have gone under if not for, quote, the brand, unquote. He also testified that Hunter Biden, along with the Burisma CEO, Mykola Zlokhevsky, called D.C. to get help from then-VP Joe Biden regarding the Ukrainian prosecutor Viktor Shokin. 
Shokin was famously investigating Burisma on corruption charges when Joe Biden swooped in and demanded that he be fired, accusing him of corruption. Burisma CEO Shalakeski reportedly paid off the Bidens to the tune of $10 million for this service, according to a disclosure from an FBI informant. Just the News reports, high school boys trending conservative, bucking narrative of liberal youth. In 2022, roughly 23% of 12th grade boys self-identified as either conservative or very conservative, according to a survey. 13% identified as liberal or very liberal. Girls, on the other hand, in 12th grade are increasingly liberal, with 30% identifying as such in 2022, compared to 12% who identified as conservative. And here's a very concerning story from Catholic News Agency. Israeli extremists attempt to storm Catholic Church and monastery in northern Israel. Zionist Israeli groups have on several occasions in recent weeks attempted to storm the Melkite Catholic Church and Monastery of St. Elias in the northern part of Haifa, Israel, prompting Christians to take measures to protect the holy site. The monastery was founded by the Carmelites, who have been on Mount Carmel in Haifa since the 12th century, when hermits began to gather in caves in imitation of the prophet Elijah. Tradition holds that the prophet's cave is located underneath the altar of the church. Archbishop Pier Battista Pizzaballa, who was just named a cardinal by Pope Francis and serves as the Latin Patriarch of Jerusalem, has raised concerns that Christians are increasingly enduring persecution in the Holy Land. He said that the current administration of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has created a political climate in which acts of aggression are tolerated. Those were all of your breaking news and stories for now. Keep it dialed on Catholic Drive Time for more. Back to you, Adrian. The Gospel of the Day is a parable from our Lord talking about the sowing of the wheat with the shaft, or the the other translations will say that the cockle. Now, here in verse 38, it says, In the field is the world. And so this goes back to what he was given a parable earlier. He's explaining the parable, rather. And so he says, The field is the world. He notes that because the field is not the church. And the good seed of the children of the kingdom, the cockle of the children of the wicked ones. Why is this important that the field is the world and not the church? Well, this is important because uh, you have to note that the, the wicked are not members of the church. They're dead members. They are not members of the church. Those who are heretics are not members of the church. And so Cornelius Lapide, when he comments on this, he says by wicked ones, he's more specifically referring to those who are the, uh, the heretics specifically. Now, the other thing to note is that he says many people will take this and will apply it universally whenever our Lord says that you should not take up the cockle lest you take the wheat with it. And they say that, therefore, we should not punish heretics. And now Cornelius Lapide says that this is something that is very much in error, because to take that to its logical conclusion, that means we should not punish any crime because there's always going to be criminals amongst the good people. He's saying here that what our Lord is saying is most notably the word all. Do not take all of them. You can pick one cockle and take it and throw it into the fire. But if you try to take them all up at the same time, you're going to have to take up the weed as well. So, to apply this practically, you can't round up every single person that's a criminal all at once. You have to wait for them to commit a crime, and then you can arrest them. And the same thing here. You have to wait to see 
a particular instance of a situation before you can act. Now, it's interesting to note that he quotes St. Augustine here. He's saying many people will point to St. Augustine saying that you should not burn heretics. You should not execute heretics. But Cornelius Lapide points out that this is actually an error here because St. Augustine later on in his life repents, not just changes his mind, but he repents of his previous position and says that he was wrong. And that he says then affirms the position that he thinks that they should, in fact, execute heretics. He says this because if we're going to execute those who commit murder, how much more should we execute those who kill the soul? And so this is very important to keep in mind. Now, it says here in verse 40, Even as cockle therefore is gathered up and burnt with fire, so shall it be at the end of the world. This goes to show us those people who claim that there is no hell, that it's very clear. The cockle will be gathered up, and they will be burnt with fire. In verse 41, the Son of Man shall send his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all scandals and them that work iniquity. Notice here, he says, all those, uh, all scandals. He is calling those who commit these sins, especially of heresy, they're calling them scandals. You are a scandal. And God will gather you up and all those who work iniquity and they will be burnt in the furnace of fire. This is a grave warning, something that people need to know. And our Lord even says, he that have ears to hear, let him hear. So this is very important to keep in mind. Let us not be scandalous. Let us not be the workers of iniquity. And in fact, we have to keep in mind, it is a grave sin to give scandal. We must avoid the risk of giving scandal. This is a very real concern for those who work in Catholic media because there's always a balance between giving scandal and reporting the news. What's the line? It's very, very delicate, something that we should definitely mull over lest our eternal souls be lost. But we also have to keep in mind that it is a sin to receive a scandal. For those who receive scandal, who allow themselves to be scandalized by bad news, that too is a sin. So let's avoid giving scandal and let's avoid receiving scandal. Now we'll be right back. Did you hear that that young teenage boys are actually trending more conservative? Hmm. What about teenage girls? That's interesting. We'll be right back with more right after this. Donnie, what are the four Gospels in the New Testament? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And who baptized Jesus? St. John the Baptist. As parents, we're the primary educators of our Catholic faith to our children. And if you don't know your Catholic faith as well as you should, that's okay. Just tune in daily to the Guadalupe Radio Network by logging online to grnonline.com. The Guadalupe Radio Network. Listen, learn, love, and pass it on. This is Dale Alquist with a Chesterton Minute. What is a fanatic? Well, have you ever heard someone defending animal rights as if they have completely forgotten about human rights? G.K. Chesterton says that is a perfect example of a fanatic. Someone with a sense of a particular truth that is too strong for his sense of the universal truth. He will invoke even cruelty to prevent cruelty to animals. 
Later, he may even invoke cruelty to animals to prevent cruelty to pit ponies. It is not merely that he has kept one thing and lost a thousand things. He has lost the basis even of the one thing. For a man cannot long remain right without a reason. We must accept all the universal truths so that we don't go off balance with one particular truth. And where do we find the perfect balance of all universal truths? In the Catholic Church. Want more than a minute? Chesterton.org. And welcome back to Catholic Drive Time. This is your host, Adrian Fonseca. It's so good to be on with you today. Now, there's an interesting article out. And some may say this is good news, but there is, it's kind of a two-sided coin. So, the, this article can come out here from Timcast News. High school senior boys nearly twice as likely to identify as conservative over liberal. I have to apologize. My uh, going through, I just got my wisdom teeth removed on Friday, and I'm having a little bit of an issue right now with that uh, area where I had surgery. So bear with me as I uh, stumble my way through this. Now, the University of Michigan survey found that while boys are trending to the right, girls are trending to the left, with only 12% identifying as conservative. That's very concerning. In annual surveys over the last three years, roughly one quarter of high school seniors self-identified as conservative or very conservative on the monitoring of the future survey, a scholarly endeavor that dates to the 1970s. Only 13% of boys identified as liberal or very liberal in those years. Now, this is interesting because this goes back to a very fundamental difference between men and women, between boys and girls. Men in general, and I say in general, people immediately will be like, well, I'm not. In general, men tend to vote more conservative and women tend to vote more liberal. In fact, in a recent study, they found out that if women had not voted in the last 20 years, they left would not have won a single election. It's that stark of a difference between men and women. Now, you may be saying, well, that's not me. Well, statistically, it's most women. It may not be you in particular, but it is most women. It's interesting to know. And you think about why that might be. And I think the reason why that might be is two main reasons. One is the push of feminist ideology as being saying that you, if you are a woman, you have to be a feminist. If you are not a feminist, then you are anti-woman and you're self-hater. And this idea gets pushed on women. And so they say, well, the left are the only ones who claim to be feminist. And so I vote to the left. This is a great problem because feminism is evil. In fact, um, a great book just came out by, um, oh, what's her name? The one who wrote the anti-Mary Exposed, um, Carrie Gress. She just wrote another book recently on what is a woman, basically. That's the question that she answers in the book. And um, she starts, she actually goes after first-wave feminism, which I thought was awesome because her book, The Anti-Mary Exposed, 
went after third wave feminism and kind of touched on second wave feminism, but she didn't want to touch first wave feminism. But it seems like she finally got up the courage to go after first wave feminism because nobody wanted to do that. Because everybody's like, well, you know, at least the very least, the first wave feminists were not bad. It's all bad. If the conclusions come from the premises, the premises must be bad if it leads to the conclusion of what where feminism brought us today. Now, the second reason is that men and women think differently. Men tend to think more logically. They think logically and they're more cold and calculating. This is a grave um, concern among women whenever they are, when men and women date or they get married, they're like, oh, why don't you care? Or you think about parents. I was thinking about my, my parents recently. Whenever we were growing up, my, um, my dad, when he coached our football team, I was not a very good football player for the first few years that we played. And so my dad benched me. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? And my dad, <laughs> my dad was the head coach. Oh, wow. Yeah, and he benched me. And so no one could accuse him of favoritism because <laughs> I, I rode the bench the whole for like years. And my mom was really upset. She was like, why won't you start your son? And so my mom was very upset. She would yell at my dad. It was a point of contention in the house. And my um, and I understood that. My, I mean, I, w- I was on my mom's side. I was like, yeah, I want to play. But my dad knew that, yeah, it might be better for my feelings. And it would make my mom feel better if I started. But it wasn't what the right thing to do was. It wasn't the logical thing to do. It seemed almost cold. Like, why would a father do that to his son? Mm-hmm. But ultimately, it taught me a lesson. I had to work hard, and I had to practice. And my dad, I mean, it's not like my dad just left me to the wolves. He would stay with me after practice, and we practiced every day. He would take me to training camps during the summer, and I got good. And when I did get good, I started. And there was no doubt in my mind, anyone else's mind, that I didn't deserve to be there. And so I had earned the position. And this is the case when it comes to voting into the world. Women tend to be more emotional whenever they vote, whenever they see things, when they see narratives, and they go with what they feel. They go off of what, they, what things appear to be. Whereas men are willing to be more cold, and it's almost as if they're heartless, is what women will accuse some men of. And the clearest example of this is like immigration, for example. The left will present the narrative that, oh, they're separating kids from their children in the borders. And immediately, a woman's intuition, a mother's intuition is their heart bleeds for the child. Yeah. And that's, of course, that's natural. That's right. But the question has to be asked, so what's, what's the right solution? Well, do we just let everyone in? Do we lock them up, but just together? And we visit men and uh, we leave grown adults with children in one jail cell? Do we have individual cells for every single family? Like, what is the solution? Whenever we have, are put in a situation, I, I'm not saying that this is the right solution. I'm just saying this is a difficult situation. You, you place people in when you have tens of thousands of people coming over the border and limited resources. What do you do? And you don't necessarily know who's coming across the border. You don't know whose family is with who. You don't know who's good, who's bad. You don't know anything. You don't know who these people are. 
what do you do? Well, that's a legitimate concern that has to be debated and has to be discussed. But a natural tendency for your average woman will be, oh, I see that's happening. My heart bleeds for the child. Therefore, whoever says I'm against that, I'm going to be for them. Now, before you turn the dial and you're scandalized, these things that we are explaining are actually the strengths of both men and women. This is the strength of a woman is her compassion. The strength of a man is his logic. And so it's not it's not that these things are actual problems, but they can be manipulated into into thinking a particular narrative. And I wonder sometimes if, uh, you know, the 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 kids who are because I, I still believe that they're kids, even though that they're 18, probably uh, graduating high school. I still think that their ideas that they have aren't their own. I think they were manipulated into thinking these things. And so when I look at the statistic of why these girls are overwhelmingly liberal, I think it's because they've been manipulated into thinking about these hot button issues as being non-negotiable. One of those things being abortion. Abortion is something that is talked about all over the culture. People are scandalized. We were just talking about scandal before this uh, this previous break here. They're scandalized into thinking that this is something of a, of a quote, human right, unquote. It's a human right for you to go and murder your child. And so therefore they go and vote and reflect that idea in the way that they vote. Yeah, and the other thing is like the other issues, right? Like, for instance, uh, why do women tend to be vegan more than men? Well, a lot of it is ethical issue. Women tend to like see the furry animals and like, oh, I don't want them to die. And so I'm going to become a vegan. Yeah. And the same thing applies with the climate change. Oh, my heart bleeds for the environment. My, I see those kind of things. That's why they tend to lean more in that direction. Obviously, these are generalizations. There are tons of men um, who also fall in these categories. I know tons of men who fall in these categories. Yeah, likewise. And the same thing. Uh, m- most of the women I know in real life are not like this. <laughs> almost <laughs> almost none of the women I know in real life are like this. It's just We know all 12% of them. All 12%. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's just statistically that is uh, this is the case. And this is something that's that's interesting to note because it made me think. You know, it's almost it's almost strange that in a family, in a household, your vote can be canceled out by your spouse. Like you're if the husband can vote conservative and the and the mother can vote uh, liberal in the same household. Like, what even is the point? It almost makes sense, especially considering you mentioned there's like a proper dynamic there where the logic and the emotion meet and they're not bad things. You need both. A child needs the comforting hug of his mother, but he also needs the discipline and structure of the father. Mm-hmm. And so, this is important to keep in mind when we approach these situations and, and think about voting. Maybe voting should be reduced to a household. Like every household has a vote. And, and and I would even be willing to say that even to say like, okay, if you're not married, you don't get a vote. I would even be willing to, uh, to say that because our current situation where just everybody can vote is nonsensical, um, especially whenever we consider that this was never the case in America. In fact, in the founding of America, only landowners could vote. And other times, it was uh, they, the rules have changed over time, and the rules can change again. These are not immutable rules in the Constitution of how voting can work. And so I think it might be a good idea to change the way 
or maybe a civics test, something like that. And people have proposed that. I think Vivek Ramaswamy, he wants to do that, a civics test. But I think maybe the answer is is families. Every household gets a vote. And that would have the husband and wife be able to discuss the issues together and come to a conclusion. I'd be very curious as to what your thoughts are on that. I think that's a very... Uh, I haven't I've given much thought. It literally just came in my head right now. So uh, people are going to lynch me over it, and I'm going to be like, well, I mean, <laughs> I may change my mind tomorrow. I mean, I kind of just was thinking out loud. Yeah, but if you'd like to let us know, you can always comment uh, on our live broadcasts on YouTube, or any social media platform that you prefer. You might be listening to us now on the radio, but you get to work, and you can continue listening and comment on YouTube, Facebook, Rumble. Uh, you can comment on uh, all of those different platforms that we stream to. You can check out GRN online forward slash CDT to find all of those different platforms that we stream to. Amen. Amen. Definitely do that. And we'd love to have you there. And we'd love to interact with you there. Um, and we're about to go to a break. But, and when we do, we're going to come back with our friend Charles Colomb. Uh, we're going to be talking about the counter-revolution. He wrote an article for the European conservative, the counter-revolution revisited. And I... Am a, I would consider myself a counter-revolutionary, and I would also consider myself mm, fairly well acquainted with the counter-revolution ideas. And so I'd be very curious about Charles's idea of revisiting the counter-revolution. I read his article. I found it very fascinating. So we're going to talk about that coming up after the break. Have you even heard the term counter-revolution? What does it mean? Uh, we're going to get to that and much more coming up in Catholic Drive Time. Uh, God bless you. God love you. We'll be right back right after this. Hello, this is Steve Gleason with your one-minute tool for Catholic evangelism. Here's the question for your non-Catholic friend. Do you really believe in a secret catching away of the church called the rapture? The pages of your Bible are empty of that type of talk. So here's your three best friendship tools for Catholic evangelism. Number one, solid biblical doctrine is time-tested. This rapture idea got its wheels rolling by John Darby in about 1830. I mean, have you heard of a third coming? You know you haven't. Secondly, God's nature. There's no reasonable premise in Scripture, let alone in moral reasoning, for the results of a rapture scenario such as this. A Christian pilot is yanked, raptured, out of his jet, while scores of the remaining passengers who are not Christians violently crash to their death. Meanwhile, said pilot is basking in the presence of God. This is absurd, and believe me, this is preached day in and day out. Thirdly, bad fruit. The preacher at your church says, Tonight, don't you be left in that pew alone, while that person next to you gets raptured straight up into heaven. That, my friend, is folly with no foundation. I don't know why I turned on my radio because I've kept my radio off for years. And once I turned it on, I was absolutely hooked. I love the shows with the Catholic apologists. I love the shows with the sort of day-to-day psychologist, Greg and Lisa Popchek. I love hearing not just of other people's problems who call in, but I love getting the Catholic take on how to deal with day-to-day reality. The Guadalupe Radio Network, radio for your soul. Welcome back to Catholic Drive Time, keeping you informed and inspired. I'm Rudy Carlos, and here are some more breaking news and headlines for you. This one is from One American News. First U.S. nuclear reactor in decades enters commercial operation in Georgia. The the completion of the two reactors was slated for 2016 and 2017, but a myriad of problems kept the southern state from reaching its goal. 
It was completed at double its original cost estimation and is outputting its full capacity of 1,100 megawatts of electricity. Unit 3 is expected to be able to power around 500,000 homes and businesses. The reactors mark a new milestone for Georgia's energy and nuclear power now makes up 25% of Georgia's power generation. The Blaze Report's native man whose sex change operation brought him nothing but discomfort and pain is now battling with Canadian government to get euthanized. It's a very concerning story. Please keep this man in your prayers. His mental anguish was further compounded by the recognition that unlike his friends and family members who he'd watched have kids and prosper, he wouldn't similarly be able to procreate. Recognizing that he might satisfy the criteria for Canada's medical assistance and dying program, Cardinal indicated that he was applying in January, having concluded that he did not want to get old in this body, but was denied as ineligible to be killed by his government. And this one is from The Loop, which is uh, Catholic Vote's email blast. They say, school choice causes spike in enrollment. According to the editorial board of The Wall Street Journal, a handful of states have uh, seen a significant increase in the use of education vouchers or education savings accounts, otherwise known as ESAs, in the past year. Many states have recently created or expanded school choice programs, but are parents taking up the opportunity, the journal asked? In its early days, but data from several states could encourage lawmakers that robust offerings are in demand. So that's a little bit of a major win there for, uh, for homeschoolers. Those were all of your headlines this morning. May God bless all of your holy efforts today. Wow, Rudy. That, uh, not that last story, but the story before that, absolutely uh, cursed. Yeah, absolutely cursed. It is a, a really sad thing to, to bring those stories up, but uh, this is the kind of thing that, uh, that is prevailing in the culture today. Yeah. Just yeah. north of us in Canada. And you know, what happens to Canada it can come down too, here. Yeah, not too far away. Yeah. I think this, uh, the whole euthanasia thing, it's a big deal because then the state has all the incentive in the world to kill you. But, you know, it's, it's interesting. I wonder why they wouldn't kill this guy. Right. Because yeah, they it's... kill homeless people. Yeah. I've heard many stories where homeless people will say, well, I'm just tired of being homeless. And the state will approve their death. But the guy who is, um, I'm not saying that this guy should kill himself. I'm, no. I, I disagree completely. But it's just trying to understand their logic this guy who's genuinely in anguish and his life is irrevocably yeah irrevocably damaged is ruined like it never will be fixed he'll never be able to get out of it he gets not approved for for suicide obviously i don't think he should be suicided no i don't but i don't understand the logic i don't understand why the one would not and the other would it's very, very strange. Yeah, and just recently we had a, another story, uh, this one coming out of England, that uh, reported that this man who was in hospice with his wife, who's, he smothered her, was released from jail. Really? And, and, and you think, you wonder about this. Is this really compassionate to take somebody's life? I mean, in those last moments of your life when you can suffer for the glory of God, for the salvation of souls... These mm. people don't know this because we are not a Christian culture anymore. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, very, very uh, concerning situation. It, what, there's a saying, I forget what it, how it goes. I think it's something along the lines, I think this comes from, I believe, Fulton Sheen. He says, um, mercy to the guilty is injustice to the innocent. And I think that's exactly right. 
obviously there is a place for mercy, but many times whenever we just release somebody from jail out of this false sense of mercy, all we're doing is putting innocent people in danger. And I think mercy has to be predicated on the fact that someone is repentant. Mm -hmm. If someone's repentant, then there is the opportunity for mercy, not the obligation of mercy, but the opportunity for mercy. Because someone still deserves their just rewards, and their just rewards may be punishment. And so if someone commits a crime, if they are genuinely guilty, then I guess they should be punished for that crime. Uh, but it is up to the state or whoever is in charge to give mer mercy, kind of like a parent with the child. Mm -hmm. If the child does something wrong, the child, it's the parent's freedom to decide whether or not they want to punish the child or to give mercy to the child. And giving mercy is only acceptable in those situations if the child is repentant. Otherwise, you're just teaching the child a bad lesson. So I think that's uh, something to keep in mind whenever we see stories like that, especially with the uh, the no bail, uh, no bail release that just came through in L.A. Yikes. Ooh Would not want to be there. Uh, but joining us right now is Charles Colomb. Uh, relative to our conversation, he has his accolades. I could just spend... The next, uh, the rest of the hour, just talking about that. But we're going to tell relative to our conversation. He writes for the European Conservative, uh, namely this article, "The Counter Revolution Revisited." Good morning to you, Charles Cologne. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, but what was this latest thing in Los Angeles, city of my heart and dreams? And all <laughs> well, they they had a, um, a recently about a month or so ago. They put out a new law, which I think used to be present in San Francisco, where they said basically that uh, if you commit a crime, they're not going to make you post bail to be able to, to leave on bail. You don't actually have to post bail. So people are just being arrested and then let go. Um, very, very concerning situation. Well, I think it might be time to go home. <laughs> oh, sorry. No, 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 came out wrong. I, I, I didn't mean that the way it sounded. There you go, folks. There you go. Well, speaking time to, of the... Time to get some real DUI time in. That's all I can say. Ah, <laughs> well, speaking of the, uh, well, the decadent culture and the, the, this uh, constant, constant revolution we're seeing in our and our nation. Uh, you wrote this article, The Counter-Revolution Revisited. I thought it was very interesting. I personally, I'm a huge um, devotee to Professor Plinio, and I, I love uh, Revolution, Counter-Revolution. I've read it um, a couple times, and I find it to be very, very um, wonderful. So I thought it was very interesting that you were writing this article, Counter-Revolution Revisited. And so I'm curious to know your thoughts on the idea of revisiting the Counter-Revolution. Uh, first, let's start with what is the Counter-Revolution? That's a very good question, and the article was actually uh, spurred by two books. One I had read earlier called The Counter-Revolution by Thomas Molnar. I read that in college, and I read Dr. Plinio's book roughly around the same time. But I know I read uh, Molnar's first. And basically, the counter-revolution is just what it sounds like, that you've got a revolution of some kind, and obviously not everybody is on board, and they resist, depending on what the revolution's in. You know, it's a revolution in the garden club. There are some people who like their petunias, thank you very much, and no, we're not changing. <laughs> That's a very basic human reaction to someone presenting them with everything being different now. Uh, but specifically and politically, 
uh, it first became a concept in the wake of the French Revolution. Although you could make the argument, and I think you'd be right, that the cavaliers in the English Civil Wars and the Jacobites who followed mm. them were actually counter-revolutionaries, although that the term had not yet been invented. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. Um, I think it's interesting. The Thomas Molnar, I actually am not familiar with, and I saw him here mostly seem to have cited Thomas Molnar in your uh, in your article here. Um, what was his idea? Because uh, Professor Plinio, when he articulated the counter-revolution, he very specifically was referring to uh, a resurrection of Christian civilization. And so what does uh, Molnar think whenever he says uh, counter-revolution? Well, he uses the, uh, the great revolutions of our time. Uh, and, and bear in mind, he's writing, uh, I think, in the early 60s, when uh, revolution in those days primarily meant communism. Uh, but the French Revolution was obviously behind it. Uh, Dr. Plinio's contribution, although it's not original to him, but he certainly popularized that idea, is that really the waves of revolution begin not in 1789, but 1517. Uh, but at any rate, his concept of the counter-revolution was, how do I put it, that it wasn't simply negative, and that in pursuit of opposing the French Revolution, opposing the revolutions of 1848, opposing uh, 1917 in Russia. Uh, obviously, people had, uh, people had to uh, come up with reasons to justify what they were doing. And he also linked them in a way that had never been done before. In other words, it's easy to just say, well, anybody's a counter-revolutionary who doesn't like you know, the, the push this way or that. But he said, well, no, actually, there was something more to it, Christianity being a big piece of it, Christian civilization. Um, but he also did something, and I and this was very unique to Molnar. I'm going to have to uh, hold you right there. We're going to go to a quick break. When we come back, uh, we will pick up right there on what we're talking about with the revolution. I also thought it was interesting to talk about Protestants' role. So we'll talk with that in just Hello, one this moment. Is Steve Gleason with your one-minute tool for Catholic evangelism. Here's the question for your non-Catholic friend. Haven't you honestly wondered why do all the different denominations break away from each other? Timeline. 1500s. Luther breaks from the Catholic Church. 16th century. John Knox is influenced by Calvin and breaks from Luther. Thus the Presbyterians. 17th century. John Smith then breaks away and starts the Baptist. 18th century. Wesley breaks and starts the Methodists. Even crazier are all the scores of non-denominational individuals who break from each other, generally due to cosmic ego and, quote, a new revelation. Well, here's the three best friendship tools for Catholic evangelism. Number one, the Bible. Judges 21 says, quote, in those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which is right in his own eyes. Secondly, physics. Once the dam breaks, water goes where it will. Luther broke canon law 331, which says about the Pope, by virtue of his office, he possesses supreme, full, immediate, and universal ordinary power in the church. And thirdly, my take. Gifted theologians can be just like my fourth grade friend who said, I'm taking my bat and ball and going home. 
Hey, Donnie, who was the first pope to whom Jesus said, you are the rock upon which I will build my church? St. Peter. And who is the current pope? Pope Francis. As parents, we're the primary educators of our Catholic faith to our children. And if you don't know your Catholic faith as well as you should, that's okay. Just tune in daily to the Guadalupe Radio Network by logging online to grnonline.com. The Guadalupe Radio Network. Listen, learn, love, and pass it on. Welcome back to the Catholic Drive Time Show. Uh, joining us right now is Charles Colomb. Before we went to a break, I had to cut him off right there. He was just getting to the definition, and I stopped him, and I said, Stop. We're gonna, I'm going to hold you up right there, uh, but we're going to pick up right there. So, uh, Mr. Colomb, feel free to uh, finish your thought there. Well, uh, Molnar made some very, very important um observations about why counter-revolutions generally fail. And the reason is that the revolution itself only happens at the end of a, of a period of decay when the, uh, the leadership of the given country, organization, whatever it may be, are no longer completely confident in their legitimacy and their rights to rule. When that happens, you have a fissure in society into into which and from which revolution emerges. Um, it, his point was that revolutions only tend to occur, A, when a good chunk of the rulership are already willing to go along with it, and B, when what's left lack conviction. So it's uh, using that as an example... Uh, it's no wonder that the initial response to Luther was so lackadaisical. Because a lot of people have been denouncing abuses. There have been a whole uh, uh, ecumenical council called Lateran 10, which nobody's ever heard of, uh, which legislated all sorts of wonderful reforms, literally within the decade before um, uh, Luther was emerged. And yet, boom, it was a dead letter, completely ignored by everybody. So Luther basically arose uh, the way the men of 1789 and 1817 and 1848 did when the fractures, the already existing fractures, were great enough to allow them to do so. And when the great, when some of the great and mighty were willing to side with them. There had been many, many, many heresies before Luther. But none of them split Christendom. Well, none of the, not Arianism and things like that, that way back in the beginning, but none of the more recent heresies had split uh, Christendom the way Lutheran, uh, Luther's and Calvin and those guys did, precisely because there were kings willing to back them now. That made all the difference. But that in itself was a sign of the decay that was already present. Right. It's very interesting to think about the role of the aristocracy in the revolution, uh, because the revolution is necessarily egalitarian, and they hate aristocracy, and yet none of the revolutions would have been possible without the aristocracy. What are your thoughts there? Well, let's put it this way. Uh, revolutions generally brought about 
by the people who were just this side of total power. And they use the masses as their foot soldiers, as their muscle. And they make all sorts of egalitarian yapping. But of course, once the revolution succeeds, egalitarianism goes right out the window. In the immortal words of Martin Luther, and his egalitarianism was expressed in a private judgment. You know, everyone will be told by the Holy Spirit what the story is. Yet, when he managed to get in charge of places, his response was, if they question why, why I've, uh, I'll have it, tell them it is because I, Martin Luther, declare it so. Mm. And that, so the egalitarian thing, that is the, the wrapping, the advertising used to lure the poor and the quote-unquote disenfranchised out to become um, foot soldiers. But they're never the ones who do the planning, and they're never the ones who benefit. Hmm. Quite the contrary. Uh, you could see an example of that, frankly, in our own American Revolution. Uh, you could see it, well, the very change in rhetoric at the present time is reflects a change in the class structure. From Marx on till about the 60s, the 70s, the idea was that the industrial proletariat would be the foot soldiers of the revolution. And so they were the ones that the usually much better, much better healed, much wealthier revolutionary ideologues would appeal to. But they don't exist anymore. In most of the Western countries, the industrial proletariat that some of our grandparents might have belonged to, or great-grandparents, just doesn't really exist anymore. It does in the third world. You know, you'll find it in the favelas in Brazil and places like that. But it does not exist in the West. So who do the revolutionaries turn to there now? Well, they turn to uh, people of color. They turn to sexual minorities. They turn to uh, Marxified students. And well, they try to build a sense of resentment. In, and we've got to overthrow the order. In your estimation, then, if, if it seems as though the counter-revolution always fails, uh, what's, the, uh, what's the solution? I suppose, I mean, we can't not be counter-revolutions, uh, counter-revolutionaries. We certainly cannot be revolutionaries. So what is the, um, the solution to, to re-looking at the way the counter-revolution works? Well, Molnar gave a lot of thought to that, and I think he was on to something. He said part of the problem is the counter-revolutionaries do not really have a body of doctrine they're only united for the most part. I mean, they have some. Don't, don't get me wrong. There have been a lot of really great counter-revolutionary writers, most of whom are completely unknown today, just thought I'd mention that. But uh, the problem is that most counter-revolutionaries are simply opposed to what's going on. Now, what are they in favor of? That's one problem. The second problem is that they lack the passion of the revolutionary. And Molnar points out that whenever, uh, whenever someone is uh, making an appeal for a, shall we say, right-wing cause, they start by apologizing because they know that their their base are busy living lives, you know, which is something the left are not necessarily doing. They're worrying about the kids. They're worrying about their job. They've got a busy time, so they start apologizing, but. Molnar's suggestion, firstly, is that precisely what the counter-revolution is and what it stands for be codified, 
uh, in such a way as to be worth working for. And secondly, that uh, its organizers have the same sense of immediacy that they're opposite numbers do. Uh, when, the, when the left tell their minions to get out and demonstrate, I guarantee you there's no hesitation or apology in their literature. I agree, no. Charles. Uh, you know, these. what you're saying is true. I, I do. This is a sentiment that I've had, uh, you know, thinking about conservatism is that we're not really united on anything. So um, what do you think is the solution to this? Is it that we simply need to create organizations to, to speak about this more prominently? Do we need to gather the most prominent minds of, of counter-revolution and bring them together and how does this work? Is, has this ever happened in the past where people have come together and, and have uh, succeeded to some extent? I only know of one time, the Spanish Civil War, hmm. uh, where Franco got the various disparate members of the Spanish right to collaborate and defeat the communists. That's it. That's wow. the only uh, Salazar in Portugal, I guess, to a degree. And, of course, they couldn't give everybody what they wanted, so he did the next best thing, which was to disappoint everybody. <laughs> he, you know, if you, if you can't please everyone, you're, it's almost as good if none of them are happier. <laughs> but seriously, um, you know, his grand coalition with the Carlists who supported the older line of Spain and the very Iberian, and I say Iberian because it applied to Portugal also, ideal of traditional monarchy, um, the Alfonsinos, who were liberal monarchist supporters of, of the deposed king, the Falangists, uh, and a few other groups, and a lot of what they wanted was certainly the same. Not all of it. And above all, they didn't want Spain to turn communist. And it was this latter that he was able to work with. In terms of our position, I would say just about everything that you've mentioned all at once. In other words, one, I think it's important, especially because we live in the information age and literally anything that's been written is available now and can even be translated. Uh, we try to identify the great counter-revolutionary thinkers that nobody's ever heard of anymore and pull them out of obscurity from, you know, 1815 to our own time. Secondly, absolutely meet like-minded people. Thirdly, and this is a great danger. You know, there, there, there are two poles in any kind of work of this sort. One is to be so ideologically pure that you're totally irrelevant to life as lived. The other is to be so pragmatic that you don't sign up for anything in particular. So you got to somehow, between those two, you can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. So while maintaining your basic first principles, you've got to reach out to as many people as you possibly can. Now, having said all of that, there are a couple of other things that have been borne in mind. One is that the problem of the West is political, certainly, but that is a symptom, not the cause. Mm -hmm. The uh, politics are rooted in culture, and culture is rooted in religion. And just as the the classical civilization of Greece and Rome and their barbaric conquerors' uh, cultures were all Christianized and produced what we're still living off of 
day. So too, if as and when a people become really and truly Catholic, then their institutions, their culture will organically change. Now that doesn't mean there aren't great leaders who play parts in advancing the process much more quickly at this place or another. But what it does mean is that A, you can't look for that kind of thing, and B, you can't wait for it. And that brings me to the last piece, which is there are many, many sorts of causes in society today in the West that are not directly related, but are sort of ancillary, sort of semi-connected. You know, your, your local uh, friends of your historic mansion in your little dumpy town, um, actually, they're doing something that's rather counter-revolutionary. Uh, the, the, the friends of the uh, Pocono uh, waterfalls. <laughs> Again, I'm pulling names out of hats, but there are a lot of these sorts of activities on the local level that allow one to get involved in doing something that's objectively useful on the local level, allows one to perfect one's skills in organizing and doing stuff. That's something a lot of our sort of people don't have. They're great with theory, but they don't really know how to do things. Well, Mr. Colomb, I unfortunately have to cut you off there. Um, let me uh, let me just make this as a plea to say, uh, hey, write some uh, more articles on the counter-revolution. Expose some of these uh, unknown counter-revolutionary writers. I'd be very curious to read them. Uh, but God bless you, Mr. Colomb. God love you, and we'll have to have you God back. God bless you. And that's going to do it. We'll Thank be you. right back right after this. We all know children have a natural innocence and a sense of wonder. Yet our world is full of distractions that can pull families in the wrong direction. But with the help of God and a church family, your children can grow in the security of faith, hope, and love. Weekly Mass provides that critical faith foundation needed in life. So if your family hasn't been to Mass in a while, we'd like to invite you home. Discover more at catholicscomehome.org. Hello, this is Steve Gleason with your one-minute tool for Catholic evangelism. Here's the question for your non-Catholic friend. Is the Bible sufficient to answer all questions about Christian living and church life? Well, the answer is definitively no. There isn't agreement on scores of doctrinal issues, such as the effects of baptism, who can receive communion, once saved, always saved, abortion, or how about eligibility for marriage after divorce? So here's your three best friendship tools for Catholic evangelism. Number one, fruit analysis. Luther, Calvin, and Zwingli, who are the fathers of non-Catholic Christianity, did not rid the unbiblical practices they despised, but instead turned out to be the progenitors of some 50 denominations and scores of divergent beliefs. Secondly, natural reason. Well, if the Bible alone is supposed to clarify all beliefs, the very fact that such division prevails is actually proof that an arbiter of doctrine is desperately needed. And thirdly, the golden twins. Sacred scripture and sacred tradition will always prevail as the foundation of all Christian truth, doctrines, and beliefs. Remember, identical twins come from one egg. I actually was gone from the Catholic Church for 35 years. I want to get to heaven. I don't know if I will. I mean, I worry about it. But I not only want to get to heaven at the moment of my death, I want to find as much heaven as possible here on earth. So I need help. 
I don't know why I turned on my radio because I've kept my radio off for years. And once I turned it on, I was absolutely hooked. The Guadalupe Radio Network, radio for your soul. Celebrating the culture of life. This is the Guadalupe Radio Network, radio for your soul. Hi, I'm Leon Fontana from St. Elizabeth Ann Seton. You're listening to KSHJ Houston AM 1430, part of the Guadalupe Radio Network. Radio for your soul. I had my uh, wisdom teeth taken out last Friday, and for some reason today is worse than yesterday in recovery. I think I did something I wasn't supposed to or something because... Uh, Oof, today is uh, less ideal, so I've been having a little bit of trouble speaking today and speaking a lot slower than I would ideally prefer. So I just wanted to uh, let you know and thank you in advance for your charity, your prayers, and for the, um, the understanding that uh, today is a little rough. It's a little rough, so praise be to God. Uh, but, you know, all glory to God. Great opportunity to offer up some sufferings to Almighty God. But joining us right now is Adam Bly. He's one of the the co-hosts of The Spirit World, airing every Saturday at 10 a.m. Good morning to you, Adam. Good morning, Adrian. Nice to see you again. Praise be to God. It's good to have you on. Uh, Now, it's really interesting. The, The Spirit World always has very, very interesting topics and I'd love to know uh, what is the sneak peek of what you're going to be discussing this Saturday. Well, we're going to be discussing the mystical aspects of the Holy Mass. And so, you know, there, there's a number of, of ways to approach that. But um, kind of, you know, in thinking about that poll a little while ago where so few people believe in the true presence in the Eucharist, um, not only to to approach that, but just to approach the Mass in general from the perspective of the history of it, the eternal nature of it, uh, the way the Mass is directly drawing on the words of Christ, the the mystical nature of the priesthood, that not just anybody could stand up and say the same words and do the same motions and have the Eucharist confected, you know, transubstantiated. Uh, into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. Like, there, there's a lot going on with the Mass that I think, even, you know, I think of myself, it's easy to take it for granted and just go to Mass and not really fully appreciate what's going on. So, you know, hopefully it's an opportunity to explore those things and maybe, you know, maybe get some questions uh, from people that maybe haven't been well catechized on it and, and try to answer them. Yeah, it's very interesting. And, you know, our... One thing I, I love to think about, especially at Holy Mass, I this is kind of very taboo in the 21st century, uh, but I love to pray the rosary during Mass. Specifically, I love praying the sorrowful mysteries of the rosary because it helps me to meditate upon the reality of what Mass is. And I like to think, what better thing to do during Mass than to be with Our Lady at Holy Mass, and when I go to receive Holy Communion, I always like to imagine myself receiving our Lord 
as if from the hands of the Blessed Virgin, and then having asking St. Simeon to give me the grace to to react with the joy that St. Simeon had in receiving our Lord from the hands of the Blessed Virgin. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, uh, Adam? You know, actually, Adrian, that touches on on something that that God's been, I think, getting me in touch with this last year, and that is each week, in a sense, is, is a, a recapitulation of the Passion story. So, you know, each Friday we're reminded of Jesus dying on the cross, and Our Lady of Sorrows is really about Mary from that moment, that very sad moment at the cross when she's watching her son die, and then how she must have felt that evening through Saturday leading up to the resurrection. And the Mass on Sunday, in a sense, is that encounter, we could just think of this this way, to remember Mary's encounter with her risen son, with the reality of her risen son. And so Our Lady of Sorrows is really that journey from Friday to the Mass on Sunday. That's kind of where Mary is at. And so getting in touch with her, but then leading up to that joyful reunion that happens, in a sense, at the consecration of the Mass when he is raised on Sunday. In a sense, we could think of that as the end of the journey of Our Lady of Sorrows into that joy of that reunion. And so, yeah, I, I basically really kind of agree with you in the, in the sense that um, I think there's a beautiful way to get in touch with Mary, both in that sadness and appreciating the loss that she experienced. Um, but then the joy of the resurrection. And it's, it's another way to get in touch with the joy of the Mass in terms of that weekly cycle of of the passion of Jesus. And, you know, that kind of makes me think. I read um, maybe two years ago the, the Hidden Treasure of the Mass by uh, Saint, what is who it is, um, that is now driving me, Leonard of Port Maurice, Saint Leonard of Port Maurice, uh, the Hidden Treasure of the Mass. And one thing that kind of stood out to me is something that we don't really do anymore is he has this kind of meditation that he encourages people to make throughout the mass. So instead of focusing in, like he says, you can get a missile and you can follow along the mass if you would like, but he offers another alternative for people saying these short little prayers at different parts of the mass. And I think that's very interesting, these little devotional books that kind of guided you through how to pray throughout the Mass has kind of fallen by the wayside. What do you think about those little kind of devotions? Are you familiar with those? I'm not familiar with those, Adrian. I wonder, I, I kind of assume that was from the days of the Latin Mass being the most common form of the Mass. And so I would think some people wouldn't necessarily know unless they had memorized the translation exactly what was going on in the mass at any given moment and so the ability to give somebody a, a booklet to to pray and engage with that that maybe guides them through that by through their own prayer i would assume the prayers are related to the various stages of the mass um but yeah that would be my guess about why that maybe was popular in the past and mm. now with the with the local languages being used um, it's probably not as popular because we can we can be more easily aware and engaged with what's going on at any moment. Yeah, that makes sense. It's really interesting. For example, I'm, I was looking at the um, the prayer for the 
from by Alfonso Liguori, because today is the Feast of St. Alfonso Liguori. So I was uh, looking at his commentary on the Holy Mass, and he actually wrote another devotional kind of like this. And here, whenever he talks about, for instance, the, um, the consecration of the Eucharist, he says, this is, a great, this is the great moment. The miracle of love is wrought. The minister of God receives and adores Jesus Christ in his hands. The elevation of the host and of the chalice represents the crucifixion, and the separation of the holy species represents the death of our Lord. Let us reanimate our faith. Let us prostrate ourselves and adore. And he kind of has these kind of meditations throughout trying to explain what's going on and explains, okay, this is what we should be directing our minds towards at this part of the Mass. And I've kind of used these recently um, at Mass, and I found it to be really helpful in trying to direct my intentions very specifically during Mass without getting distracted. Because, you know, so often during Mass, you kind of just go through the motions, and it just becomes, like you mentioned at the top, it just becomes rote. And you're like, man, did I even go to mass? Objectively, I, you did, but subjectively, you may not have. And it's uh, and it's something that is a real concern. And kind of having this guidance of intention is very helpful to me. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, Adrian, that's that's a beautiful example of the different ways that we can experience the mass. You know, it, it's it is a, a replay of the Last Supper leading up to, as you say, one way to look at it is actually the crucifixion and the elevation and the separation of the blood. Um, that's one way to look at it. And so that focus on the Mass is kind of focused on that sacrifice and, and the replaying of that sacrifice versus the one that we talked about earlier, focusing on the arrival of Jesus, you know, entering into our lives as the faithful now in a similar way that he re-entered the life of Mary and Our Lady of Sorrows. So it's just an example of the myriad ways that the Mass can speak to us. And depending on where we're at in life and what we need, we can experience different realities and different um, kind of gifts that can come from the Mass. You know, and it all goes back to Scripture. It's it's a, a re-experiencing of Scripture, but it's lived as opposed to read and thought about. And so, um, yeah, that's that's why the Mass, in a sense, this you know, the show that we're doing this Saturday is about all these mystical layers of the Mass mm. and the way we can get different things out of it depending on what we need in our lives at that time. You know, the Eucharist is the source of every grace that every person needs. It, it is everything that every Christian needs uh, in terms of the holiness and the grace that comes from it. You know, and, and so Jesus is there for us in whatever our needs are and however we need to relate to him at that particular Mass. So, yeah, I just, it's kind of, it's kind of like a rabbit hole that you go down and you realize there's no end to it with the different, <laughs> with the different saints. Mm -hmm. there, there's different experiences and reflections and um, ways to engage with the Mass. And, and it's just, it never ends. It's beautiful. I agree. I agree completely. I think um, there's this tendency to try to say um, there is only one right way to attend Mass, and that's a uh, the, the colloquial understanding of active participation, that you have to be saying the words, you have to be singing the songs, and if you're not, then you're not actively participating in the Mass. And I think that's done a great harm to a lot of people's uh, devotion and faith. Um, but, you know, before we run out of time here, I, I would be amiss if I didn't bring up this kind of idea that people have about relating to exorcisms, that people say that, oh, well, why, how can someone who is possessed receive the Holy Eucharist at Mass 
and remain possessed. And I've also heard stories of people who are possessed that go to mass and just cannot sit in mass at all. And they can't stay in mass. They will just run out the door. Uh, is that the case? And what are your thoughts or what is your analysis of that? Sure. So basically, you know, roughly maybe nine times out of 10, the person cannot attend mass. They might be able to stay in the church uh, until get, approaching the consecration. That might be uh, as far as they can get. Almost always when the consecration is about to happen, they're under so much distress that they will flee the church. They'll get out of there. Now, maybe one out of 10 cases, very rare cases where the person, um, you know, receives the grace to be able to do it, they will be able to stay in control and go up and receive communion. So it does happen, but the vast majority of the time, the person either can't stay even for the beginning of mass or they're very uncomfortable. And then when the consecration is coming, they flee. And then the very rare case, the person just receives the grace to receive communion. Um, so, you know, it, it comes down to Adrian, we have to be careful about saying there's absolute rules mm -hmm. when it comes to possession and exorcism and all this, because uh, yes, there's the rules of the church and, and Jesus um, enforces those. But when it comes to other questions like this, like, well, can you receive communion? It's not really our place to tell Jesus what he can and can't do. So he, if he wants to give somebody the grace to receive communion, he does. And it's not our place to say, well, that doesn't make sense to me. He shouldn't do that. That's, mm. that's, not, our, that's not our place. And so um, we see trends with that question, but we don't see absolute rules. That's really interesting because, yeah, I mean, like you said, it's not our place to say, but right, like you're your intuition would say, well, like if you have Christ dwelling within you, then how can you have a devil dwelling within you? And it just seems um, it, it's like your brain just breaks a little bit there. <laughs> and so I, I could definitely see that, mm -hmm. but I definitely God uh, makes the decision at the end of the day. So we, who are we to, uh, to question divine judgment? Um, in the last couple of seconds we have, I want to let you to uh, pitch the, the spirit world and whatever else uh, you'd like to uh, follow up with. Oh, just that, you know, the spirit world is a radio show I do with with my friend Debbie Giordiani, um, Saturdays, Eastern time, 11 to 12. And, you know, we've been going for a little while. Um, and we, we just try to look at the supernatural and preternatural aspects of the faith, um, the spiritual side of the faith that a lot of us maybe haven't lost touch with or haven't been catechized in. And, you know, we, we take questions, we do a little bit of teaching. Um, and and it seems that people find it interesting. Uh, we try to you know we try to be obedient and and thorough. Start with scripture, move to the catechism, move to other revelation, maybe through the saints, and then also direct experience when it comes to exorcism. I've been training priests in exorcism for about 15 years. I'm a lay person, um, so you know hopefully it's useful to people. That's the goal. Amen. It is Amen. to evangelize and be useful. So check it out. 10 a.m. Central across the Guadalupe Radio Network. In AD, but it's EWTN. So check it out. The Spirit World. A very sober take on very real realities, I would say. Uh, but thank you very much, Mr. Bly. Have a blessed day. And Thank that's going to do it. We're going to go into our Fear and Trembling game show. If you can join us, you can call now, 877-757-9424, 877-757-9424. We'll be right back. 
Hello, this is Steve Gleason with your one-minute tool for Catholic evangelism. Here's the question for your non-Catholic friend. In your view, was the Virgin Mary simply an obedient woman who willingly gave biological and maternal matter to Jesus and therefore has been given undue adoration? So here's your three best friendship tools for Catholic evangelism. Number one, the Bible. The Virgin Mary is in the first book of the Bible, the last book of the Bible, all through the Gospels and close to 15 other typologies throughout Scripture. Secondly, the Ark of the Covenant. It was the most revered object in the history of the children of Israel. That ark carried the presence of God. Well, goodness, the Virgin Mary did not just carry the presence of God. She carried God himself. Thirdly, something to think on. If God is a father, he is, and we are known as his children, we are, and the body of Christ are called brothers and sisters, they are. Wouldn't God provide a mother for his church? He did. So here's an idea. Ask a wartime veteran whose soldiers cry out for in a moment of fear. That's right, their mother. Mother Mary, pray for us. Ever feel like life's just too much? Maybe it's time for a change. God offers us relief and hope. So if you're feeling like you need more peace today, begin at catholicscomehome.com. I used to wonder if God really cared about me. Then I started praying and going to church. I realized that God in my life was the difference between occasionally being happy and finding lasting joy. If you're looking for something more, check out catholicscomehome.com. Welcome to another round of fear and trembling. (laughs) The Catholic Trivia Game Show that helps you work out your salvation by the seat of your pants. It's a 50-50 chance and prizes are involved. Avoid the weeping and gnashing of teeth. Call now to take your shot. 877-757-9424. 877-757-9424. That's the number to call to be part of our game show, Fear and Trembling, where we give out prizes and you could win. Well, you may be asking, Fear and Trembling, what am I trembling about? Well, one, your salvation. Two, uh, <laughs> whether or not you're going to win the prize, that's what you're going to be trembling about. Because here I have three Catholic trivia questions. Now, you may be saying, well, I'm not Catholic. I don't know any answers to any Catholic trivia. Well, that's okay, because you don't even need to know the answers to win. Because the trick is, I'm not going to ask you the questions. I'm going to ask Rudy the questions. He's going to give me an answer, and it's your job to tell me whether or not Rudy is correct or whether or not he is incorrect. You know, it would be 15 seconds on the clock, and that means you have 50% chance of getting the correct answer, even if you just guess. So those are pretty good odds, I would say. And every right answer goes into the coffee cup of divine providence to win this week's prize. Rudy, what could they win? Praise be to God. The prize pack this week is a bundle of items from Visions of the Good Help. You can win a miraculous metal tote bag and a journal as well as some other goodies. This prize was generously donated by uh, Theoni Bell. And Theoni is the author of The Woman in the Trees. It's a novel based on America's first approved Marian apparition. You can check that out through Tan Books. She lives here in Houston with her husband and three kids and four in heaven. She has an M.A. in international journalism and teaches literature to her uh, her co-op kids. She recently wrote another glory story. If you're not familiar with glory stories, you should check them out. They're really great for kids. And she wrote one for Our Lady of Champion with Holy Heroes. And her picture book, Jelly Bean, is going to be released later this year as well with Holy Heroes. You can find her website at theonibell.com. Or you can go on Etsy if you'd like to support her store and, and type in Visions of the Good Help, and you can find her that way. Thank you so much, Theoni. 
Thank you very much to Theoni Bell for your generous donation of that awesome prize. Uh, but joining us right now is Pamela. Good morning to you, Pamela. Good morning. Now, where are you calling in from, Pamela? San Antonio, Texas. San Antonio, Texas. And Pamela, you're a repeat caller, right? Yes, sir. That's right. I remember the name. I can uh, recognize the voice. And so where are you off to this morning? To work. To work. And what is work? Is that, um, let me guess, you're a, a neurosurgeon? No. No, not quite. Not quite. <laughs> um, uh, I'm just going to say that every time in one day it's going to be correct. And I'm going to be like, first try. There you go. Uh, so what, what's the employment? Home health care. Home health care. See, I wasn't that far off. I was in the ballpark. It was in the, in the right field, at least, somewhere over there. But praise be to God. Wonderful, wonderful work. Now, you're familiar with the game show, so I'm sure you can tell whether or not Rudy is being tricky. When he's not being tricky, uh, are you ready to jump into that? Yes, sir. All right. So keep your ears tuned because uh, Rudy the Tricky is well known for tricking people. Wow, I have a new nickname, Rudy the Tricky. Yeah, yeah. I need to find an alliteration <laughs> way of saying that. Somebody give me a double R that I can <laughs> I can put there instead. All right. Question number one, Rudy. Are you ready? I am ready. Let's do this. Maybe are you? Uh, we can call you uh, Ready Rudy. Ready Rudy. Yeah, Ready Rudy. Something like that. I don't know. So he needs alliteration. The Rick double R. Roll Rudy. Rick Roll Rudy. You're just gonna be. Like, <laughs> I'm never gonna give you up. That's right. There you go. Perfect. <laughs> um, before I get copyright strikes, uh, let's True. move on. One of the two evangelists who were apostles. Oh, you mean out of two event out of out of the evangelists who were the apostles? Right. Okay. Uh, there was two of them. Mm-hmm. And that was John right. and Matthew. John and Matthew were saying. Yes. You're saying Mark and Luke were not apostles. That's right. Okay. Interesting theory you have there. All right, Pamela. Let's see whether or not you can trust Rudy. 15 seconds on the clock. The question on the board is, out of the evangelists, the four evangelists, rather, out of the four evangelists, which ones were apostles? Well... Rudy seems to think it's John and Matthew. He says, Mark and Luke, they weren't even apostles, for crying out loud. What say you, Pamela? Is he right or is he wrong? He is correct. He is correct. Well, let's see if you are right about that. And you are, in fact, correct. Rudy was correct there. So wise. John or apostles. Now you might be wondering, what's the difference between apostles and evangelists, right? Well, evangelists, they make converts, right? While apostles create disciples. Interesting. Yeah, Yeah, well, there you go. Uh, Mark was a disciple of Peter, and Luke was a disciple of Paul. So that's where they got their information, where they wrote, and Luke also... uh, wrote down notes and he that's how he composed his gospel he went and interviewed the apostles so pretty cool pretty cool stuff all right pamela you ready for question number two yes sir let's jump into it question number two rudy what does the word here you might say it um yeshua yeshua you might say um jesus Jesus. or you might say jesus what does that word mean in Hebrew? 
What does that mean in Hebrew? You might be asking me because I'm an expert in Hebrew. Right. Yes. Especially my third language. I did know that. English, know Spanish, that. and Hebrew. Mm. It means bless his holy name. Bless his holy name is what you're saying. Mm -hmm. All right, Pamela. 15 seconds on the clock. The question on the board is, what does the word Jesus mean in Hebrew? Rudy seems to think it's bless his holy name. What say you, Pamela, from San Antonio, Texas? True. You're going to go with true. Are you sure you want to go with true? Yes. All right. The correct answer, let's see if you are right, then unfortunately, Pamela, oh. that's not the case. The correct answer is God saves. The holy name of Jesus means God saves. So praise be to God that for him saving us. True. But uh, I can understand why you got that one wrong. Rudy the Tricky was, in fact, being tricky. But don't worry. You're in one for one. I'm sure we're going to get you in for two. Uh, that's still a uh, great odds of winning the prize this week. Are you ready for question number three? Yes. All right. I have to tell you, this one could, in fact, be the trickiest question we've ever had in the history of Catholic Drive Time. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. <laughs> All right, Rudy. You may know this order. Here's a hint. They were really popular in Galveston, Texas. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were wiped out in Galveston by the Great Flood. Yeah, they ran an orphanage here in Galveston. And uh, they no longer are here because uh, the Great Flood killed them all. Sad day. So, the question on the board for you is, which order was founded by St. Angela? Yes, which order? Let me think about that for a second because mm -hmm. there's so many different orders. But what's coming to mind is one of the most uh, unique sort of habits. Uh, I think mm. this is the one that most Hollywood films gravitate towards mm -hmm. and they pick out from this one. And that's from the Ursuline nuns. Oh, the Ursulines or otherwise known as the Ursulines? That's right. All right. All right. Well, we're going to find out if you are correct and if... Maybe Pamela knows her Galveston history. 15 seconds on the clock, Pamela. The question on the board. And a bonus hint for that question. Which order was founded by St. Angela Marici and happened to be the order in Galveston, Texas that uh, was wiped out by the Great Flood in Galveston? What say you, Pamela, from San Antonio, Texas, is Rudy right or is he wrong? He says it's the Ursuline sisters. I'm going to say he's wrong. Are you sure you're going to go with wrong? I'm going to say true. He's going to she's going <laughs> to say true. She's going to say true. All right, let's see if that is correct and the answer is correct. Way to go. Pamela could not trick you. Pamela, Despite Rudy's efforts. You are wise. You are wise to change your answer there. I'm Des sorry for trying to trick you. Despite Rudy's uh, <laughs> machinations, could not be tricked. I should be a politician. You should be I a politician. You are really good at it. I've noticed uh, that. I've noticed that. <laughs> the charism of the Ursuline sisters is that of love of God and resulting openness and eagerness to serve the needs of others. Praise be to God. You know, they opened a bunch of schools 
was one of the big things they did. The other thing they did was orphanages. And it was really sad. They ran a massive orphanage in Galveston, Texas. And when, during the Great Flood, they sang um, the song Our Lady of the Seas mm. as the floods were rising. Um, and unfortunately, all the sisters were, were killed in the flood. And I believe only two or three of the orphans survived a very sad, tragic situation in Galveston. It's um, the, really the main reason why Houston exists is because um, everyone fled Galveston into yeah. Houston. And then uh, no one wanted to set up in Galveston out of fear of uh, another flood like that. So crazy situation. Uh, fun facts for the day. There you go. You're Texas welcome. history. Texas history. You're welcome. All right, Pamela. God bless you. You got two out of three. That's pretty good odds, I would say. How do you feel? I feel okay. That's good. That's good. Praise you to God. Uh, next time, I'm sure it'll be a threefer, uh, but two out of three is pretty good. But make sure you stay on the line. We're going to make sure we get your contact information so we can contact you on Friday should we draw your name out. Okay. All right. Let me put you on hold. Uh, don't go anywhere. And that's going to do it for the first hour or the second hour for the radio side. There you go. I'm all sorts of confused today. I am dealing with some uh, some issues, let's just say. And I got to get that reconciled, so hopefully today. But if you can join us in the after show, maybe I'll tell you a little bit about it. Maybe I won't. It's kind of gross. Uh, so if you want to join us in the after show, we'll chat with you some there. Whatever you want to talk about, leave a comment down below. Facebook, Rumble, YouTube, Odyssey, Twitter. Leave a comment. We'd love to interact with you directly. If not, we'll see you back here 6 a.m. Central, 7 Eastern, across the Guadalupe Radio Network and Catholic Spirit Radio. God bless you. God love you. And we'll see you very soon. joining us on Your Catholic Drive Time, where it is our pleasure to keep you informed and inspired. Join us Monday through Friday at the same time, right here on your favorite Catholic radio station. Don't forget to connect with us. Just go to facebook.com forward slash Catholic Drive Time. Again, that's facebook.com forward slash Catholic Drive Time. Be sure to share more than just us today. Share Jesus with everyone you meet. Bye now, and God love you. The Guadalupe Radio Network now brings you the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass from the chapel at Our Lady of Corpus Christi in Corpus Christi, Texas. Welcome to the Holy Mass live from Our Lady of Corpus Christi, home of the soul community. We offer this Holy Sacrifice of the Mass for all of our online viewers and all those listening to Guadalupe Radio Network. Today we celebrate the memorial of St. Alphonsus de Liguori. Praise my soul, the King of Heaven, to his feet thy tribute bring. Ransom healed, restored, forgiven, ever for his praises sing. Alleluia, Alleluia, 
Praise the everlasting King. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all and with your spirit. Let us acknowledge our sins and so prepare ourselves to celebrate these sacred mysteries. I confess to Almighty God and to you, my brothers and sisters, that I have greatly sinned in my thoughts and in my words, in what I have done and what I have failed to do, through my fault, through my fault, through my most grievous fault. Therefore, I ask Blessed Mary, ever-Virgin, all the angels and saints, and you, my brothers and sisters, to pray for me to the Lord our God. May Almighty God have mercy on us, forgive us our sins, and bring us to everlasting life. Kyrie eleison, Kyrie eleison, Christ eleison, Christ eleison, Kyrie eleison, Kyrie eleison. Let us pray. O God, who constantly raise up in your church new examples of virtue. Grant that we may follow so closely in the footsteps of the Bishop St. Alphonsus in his zeal for souls, as to attain the same rewards that are his in heaven. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God forever and ever. Amen. A reading from the book of Exodus. Moses turned and came down the mountain with the two tablets of the commandments in his hands, tablets that were written on both sides, front and back, tablets that were made by God, having inscriptions on them that were engraved by God himself. Now when Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, That sounds like a battle in the camp. But Moses answered, It does not sound like cries of victory, nor does it sound like cries of defeat. The sounds that I hear are cries of revelry. As he drew near the camp, he saw the calf and the dancing. With that, Moses' wrath flared up so that he threw the tablets down and broke them on the base of the mountain. Taking the calf they had made, he fused it in the fire and then ground it down to powder when he scattered on the water and made the children of Israel drink. Moses and Aaron what did this people ever do to you that you should lead them into so grave a sin? Aaron replied, Let not my Lord be angry. You know well how prone the people are to evil. They said to me, Make us a God to be our leader. As for the man Moses, who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has happened to him. So I told him, Let anyone who has gold jewelry take it off. He gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and this calf came out. On the next day, Moses said to the people, You have committed a grave sin. I will go up to the Lord then. Perhaps I may be able to make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Ah, this people has indeed committed a grave sin in making a god of gold for themselves. If you would, not only, if you would only forgive their sin, if you would not, then strike me out of the book that you have written. The Lord answered, Him only who has sinned against me will I strike out of my book. Now go and lead the people to the place I have told you. 
My angel will go before you. When it is time for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Our fathers made a calf in Horeb and adored a molten image. They exchanged their glory for the image of a grass-eating bullock. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. They forgot the God who had saved them, who had done great deeds in Egypt, wondrous deeds in the land of Ham, terrible things at the Red Sea. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Then he spoke of exterminating them, but Moses, his chosen one, withstood him in the breach to turn back his destructive wrath. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Alleluia, 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 Alleluia. The Father will to give us birth by the word of truth, that we may be kind of first fruits of his creatures. Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. The Lord be with you and with your spirit. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus proposed a parable to the crowds. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that a person took and sowed in a field. It is the smallest of all the seeds, yet when full-grown it is the largest of plants. It becomes a large bush, and the birds of the sky come and dwell in its branches. He spoke to them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed with three measures of wheat flour until the whole batch was leavened. All these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables. He spoke to them only in parables to fulfill what had been said through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will announce what has lain hidden from the foundation of the world. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Today we celebrate the memorial of St. Alphonsus de Liguri. We, he is the patron saint of moral theology. We used to joke in seminary because there's so, so much bad teaching in the church about, we call it immoral theology. We need to pray a lot for St. Alphonsus de Liguri because one of the biggest errors that are taught by the priests, the bishops, and faithful alike is that there is no such thing as grave sin. There's only this fundamental option, uh, which is a fundamental rejection like grave apostasy, radically turning your face away from the Lord, or b going to the fire and making a golden calf and dancing around it. That's the only sin you can commit. And it's the worst sin, and everything else is you fundamentally opted toward everything toward God. As Pope John Paul said in Very Taught to Splendor, the great encyclical he wrote about moral theology, hogwash fidofado. No, he didn't say that. That's me paraphrasing him because he said that there, if a sin is a sin is a sin is a sin. It's really simple. 
If you do something, it's bad, you know it, and you do it. It's against the grave moral law. You deliberate on it and you choose it. You, are, you knowingly choose it. You're committing a mortal sin. The result of one mortal sin is a separation eternally from you from God. And you merit eternal punishment. That's why you need to confess your mortal sins in confession. Because that act saves you. And you need to turn away from sin. And St. Alphonsus Liguori knew this. And he used to say, not just parables, all sorts of, all his books are full of tons and tons of examples. Because he knew the power of images and parables on the human person. He would say, examples, quotes of all the saints over and over and over again. And he also knew that repetition was the mother of learning. Well, so does the Holy Spirit, because we just read this gospel on Sunday, and we're repeating it again. Why? Because God speaks in parables, because we are invited to respond according to generosity we choose to be generous with. A, a parable is an invitation to change your life. What kind of seed do you want to be? Do you want to be a mustard seed? Well, you've got to make a decision. Do you want to be good leaven, not the leaven of the Pharisees? You have to make a decision. It's not a self-satisfying description of your life. Well, look, I'm the good, I'm a mustard seed, everybody. Get out of my way. I'm so great and wonderful. No, you have to choose it. You have to make sure that you are choosing to be good and even choosing to be holy. To help us do this, God has given us the sacraments of the church especially the Most Holy Eucharist, to receive the Holy Eucharist frequently and to have mental prayer and devotion to Our Lady. These are what St. Alphonsus de Liguori said, the things that help you choose rightly to respond because allowing first God to be generous with yourself, you are training yourself to be generous with God by just simply showing up if listening to Catholic radio or listening to a sermon, you're, you're doing something already. The fact that you're doing that is huge. It's a sign that God has his hand on your shoulder and God is guiding you and he's, he's leading you to try to make a response. Basically, a response is, I love you too. Because God has already said that in his son, in his beloved son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. And he says that every time he celebrates Mass, he gives us his whole being his body, blood, soul, and divinity, and he asks us to give us our, our body, our all, our, our soul, our humanity, everything in return to say, just Jesus, I return this all to you, praying and begging God to convert our will and direct our will to be in conformity with his most holy will. I highly recommend reading any of his books. They're actually rather big, but it's mostly, like I said, encouragement, encouragement, encouragement. Read the books of uh, St. Alphonsus del Gori, The Glories of Mary, the, uh, How to Die a Holy Death. Um, there's a, one on the priesthood, if you're thinking about the priesthood. There's one on consecrated life. There's all sorts of really holy books that he has written. And the, the, the wealth of what he has written should not go un, unmet, un, unread. He's a doctor of the church, especially on uh, moral theology. Let us pray through his intercession that the faithful will generously respond to God and that you become, by your very life, a parable, a message, a pronounce, uh, announcement of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us bring our petitions to the Lord. We pray for the whole church 
that it may shine forth with the holiness of Jesus Christ. We pray that the Holy Spirit raise up saints of our generation. For this we pray to the Lord. Lord, hear our prayer. We pray for our Holy Father and all the young people gathered in Lisbon, Portugal for World Youth Day. For the youth of the church, that they may shine forth as the saints of the new millennium. For this we pray to the Lord. Lord, hear our prayer. We pray for government leaders that they may not obstruct Christ. We pray for an end to abortion, same-sex unions, gender confusion, and human trafficking. We pray to the Lord. Lord, hear our prayer. We pray for all the sick, the suffering, the poor. Pray for the ignorant, those who do not know the law of God, that God may raise up holy teachers and catechists and evangelizers to proclaim the good news. For this we pray to the Lord. Lord, hear our prayer. We pray for generosity in responding to God's holy will. The generosity of Jesus and Mary may break forth in our hearts. We pray to the Lord. Lord, hear our prayer. Finally, for all of our beloved dead, that they may enter the Father's eternal glory. We pray to the Lord. Lord, hear our prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask you to hear us. We make these and all our petitions in the holy name of Jesus Christ and through the powerful intercession of our Mother Mary as we pray together. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Father, we adore you. Lay our lives before you, how we love you. Jesus, we adore you. Lay our lives before you, how we love you. Spirit, we adore you. May our lives be for you. Acceptable to God, the Almighty Father, may the Lord accept the sacrifice at your hands for the praise and glory of his name, for our good and good of all his holy church. Accept, O Lord, we pray, the offerings which we bring from the abundance of your gift, of your grace. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. O Lord be with you, and with your spirit. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right and just. It is truly right and just, our duty and our salvation, always and everywhere to give you thanks. Lord, Holy Father, Almighty and Eternal God, through Christ our Lord. For as on the festival of St. Alphonsus de Liguri you bid your church rejoice, so too you strengthen her by the example of his holy life. Teach her by his words of preaching, and keep her safe in answer to his prayers. 
and so with the company of angels and saints we sing the hymn of your praise as without end we acclaim Sanctus, Sanctus, Sanctus Dominus Deus Sabaoth, Plenisun Celia Terra, Gloria Tua, Hosanna in excelsis, Benedictus, Qui venit in nomine Domini, Hosanna in excelsis. You are indeed holy, O Lord, the fount of all holiness. Make holy, therefore, these gifts, we pray, by sending down your Spirit upon them like the dewfall, so that they may become for us the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. The time he was betrayed and entered willingly into his passion, he took bread and, giving thanks, broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take this, all of you, and eat of it, for this is my body, which will be given up for you. In a similar way, when supper was ended, he took the chalice, and once more giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take this, all of you, and drink from it, for this is the chalice of my blood the blood of the new and eternal covenant, which will be poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in memory of me. A mystery of faith, we proclaim your death, O Lord and profess your resurrection until you come again. Therefore, as we celebrate the memorial of his death and resurrection, we offer you, Lord, the bread of life and the chalice of salvation, giving thanks that you have held us worthy to be in your presence and minister to you. Humbly we pray that partaking of the body and blood of Christ, we may be gathered into one by the Holy Spirit, Remember, Lord, your church, spread throughout the world, and bring her to the fullness of charity, together with Francis, our Pope, Michael, our Bishop, and all the clergy. Remember also our brothers and sisters who have fallen asleep in the hope of the resurrection, and all who have died in your mercy. Welcome them into the light of your face. Have mercy on us all, we pray. And with the Blessed Virgin Mary, Mother of God, Blessed Joseph, her spouse, with the Blessed Apostles, and all the saints who have pleased you throughout the ages, we may merit to be coerced to eternal life, may praise and glorify you through your Son, Jesus Christ. Roho him and with him and in him, O God, Almighty Father, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all glory and honor is yours forever and ever. Amen. Precepti salutaribus moniti et divin institutioni formati audehimus dicere Pater noster qui es in celis sanctifice tuur nomen tuum adveniat regnum tuum fiat voluntas tua 
Sicut in celo et in terra. Panem nostrum quotidianum da nobis odie. Et emite nobis demita nostra. Sicut et nos dimitimus debitoribus nostris. Et ne nos inducas in tentationem. Sed libera nos amahalo. Deliver us, Lord, we pray, from every evil. Graciously grant peace in our days, and by the help of your mercy we may be always free from sin and safe from all distress, as we await the blessed hope and the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Lord Jesus Christ, who said to your apostles, Peace I leave you, my peace I give you. Look not on our sins, but on the faith of your church, and graciously grant her peace and unity in accordance with your will, who live and reign forever and ever. The peace of the Lord be with you always and with your spirit. On you stay, quitole specatam hundi, miserere nobis. On you stay, quitole specatam hundi, miserere nobis. Agnus Dei, quit holy specatum undi, dona nobis pacem. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold him who takes away the sins of the world. Blessed are those who are called to the supper of the Lamb. Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but only say the word, and my soul shall be healed. Communion Antiphon. He who ponders the law of the Lord day and night will yield fruit in due season. Active Spiritual Communion. My Jesus, I believe that you are present in the most holy sacrament. I love you above all things, and I desire to receive you into my soul. Since I cannot at this moment receive you sacramentally, Come at least spiritually into my heart. I embrace you as if you were already there and unite myself wholly to you. Never permit me to be separated from you. Amen. Maha, 
gave us St. Alphonsus to be a faithful steward and preacher of this great mystery. Grant that your faithful may receive it often, and receiving it praise you without end through Christ our Lord. Amen. The Lord be with you and with your spirit. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go in the peace of Christ. Thanks be to God. Salve Regina, Mater Misericordiae, Vita Duceto, Et Spes Nostra Salve. Ad te clamamus, Exules Filii Heve, Ad te suspiramus, Gementes et flentes, In hac lacrimarum vale. Ea ergo, advocata nostra, in los tuos misericordes oculos, ad nos converte. Et Iesu, benedictum fructum. The Prayer to St. Michael St. Michael the Archangel Defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. 
prayer of deliverance, Almighty God and Father, we beg thee through the intercession and help of the archangels, St. Michael, Raphael, and Gabriel, for the deliverance of our brothers and sisters who are enslaved by the evil one, from anxiety, sadness, and obsessions. We implore thee, deliver us, O Lord. From hatred, fornication, and envy. We implore thee, deliver us, O Lord. From thoughts of jealousy, rage, and death. We implore thee, deliver us, O Lord. From every thought of suicide and abortion. We implore thee, deliver us, O Lord. From every form of sinful sexuality. We implore thee, deliver us, O Lord. From every division in our family and every harmful friendship. We implore thee, deliver us, O Lord. From every sort of spell, malefice, witchcraft, and every form of the occult. We implore thee, deliver us, O Lord. Thou who said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, grant that through the intercession of the Virgin Mary we may be liberated from every demonic influence and enjoy thy peace always. In the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. All Catholic, all the time. This is the Guadalupe Radio Network. Radio for your soul. I'm Catherine Schaefer, music director at the Church of the Annunciation. 